Uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, they can be great ways to connect with your friends, to find out all sorts of useful information. But they can also feed an unhealthy hunger for acceptance and approval. Uh, the need to be constantly comparing ourselves with others. Uh, a 10-year study by Brigham Young University discovered that 13-year-old girls who spent two to three hours daily on social media were at higher risk of suicide as young adults. Uh, researchers concluded, uh, generalisations, girls and women are more sensitive to their posts not being well received, comparisons to others, and lack of online connection, uh, while boys tend more often to post and read funny content. I don't know how accurate that is, but anyway, that's what they concluded. Uh, now, Instagram recognised this sort of danger and um, uh, decided in 2019 to remove from public view the number of likes a photo received. Perhaps you remember that if you're on Instagram. Uh, it sort of crossed our radar when you know, some of our kids were talking about 100 likes or 200 likes on a photo. Uh, but that's no longer there for everyone to see. Uh, Instagram CEO Adam Masseri uh, decided, uh, said that the change was being made in an effort to improve the emotional and mental health of Instagram users. Uh, he said, it's about young people. The idea is to try to depressurise Instagram. It's interesting, isn't it? Make it less of a competition and give people more space to focus on connecting with the people they love and the things that inspire them. Now, maybe being popular on social media doesn't bother you, <laughs> but all of us feel the pressure to be liked or respected or accepted or all three. We are social creatures. It's natural, isn't it, at least, to be part of something, be part of a clan or a family or a group. We were made to be in relationships with people. We want to be included. But that desire can also be a terrible trap you're constantly worried about what others will think. You're constantly focused on satisfying the expectations of different groups of people. Peers, work colleagues, friends, family. But the, the problem is those expectations are all different. And what that means is you can never please everyone. It can lead to anxiety and depression. It can lead to withdrawal and social isolation. It can lead to a paralysis of decision-making where you fear the negative consequences of whatever you do. The hunger for acceptance, approval and, re and respect, it can pressure us to do things that we don't really want to do, uh, to pretend to be someone who we're not. Now, it's not going to be easy, but in these chapters of 2 Corinthians, I believe, well, God is inviting us to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. For Paul, there are all sorts of people with all sorts of expectations, uh, making all sorts of comparisons, and yet for Paul, there's only one opinion that really matters. It's there in chapter 10, verse 18. Did you notice it? For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. You see, for the Christian, commendation from others should mean nothing. 
Self-congratulation should be meaningless as well, any boast that we make about ourselves. What counts is God's approval. It's the only reward worth winning, the only claim worth boasting about. Now, obviously, if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, then that is not going to make much sense. (laughs) Why would you willingly conform your life to anyone else's expectations, let alone God? But can I ask that you just reserve judgment for a little while? Because I reckon there is a wonderful freedom in setting your life to no longer conform to the expectations of others. But instead, resolve to please God alone, the one who made you, who saved you, the one who lovingly gives you all that you need in life. Now that is a freedom that you can know as you follow Jesus. Well, let's begin by thinking about the particular situation Paul is in. Remember, it's this underlying sort of... uh, undercurrent of this whole letter. Uh, We've mentioned before his opponents in Corinth, these false teachers who are leading the church in the wrong direction. Uh, In this chapter he calls them super apostles. Uh, They've got the references, the polished speeches, the slick performances, the expensive appearance fees. And yet for all their impressiveness, Paul calls them fools. He calls them unwise. Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 10, he says, When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. So busy comparing, checking what others are thinking, worrying about their ranking uh, on the most popular sermon downloads, uh, measuring who has more letters after their name, more people in their congregation... They're so busy looking around at others that they don't look up. And they never consider what God thinks is important. They never consider a commitment to the gospel, the conformity to the character and sufferings of Christ. They never consider faithfulness and love and prayerfulness in their ministry. Now what that meant was that that had implications for what they thought of the Apostle Paul as well. So according to their measures, Paul has fallen short. So in verse 2, look at what he says about them. Some people uh, who think that we live by the standards of the world. You see, their measuring stick was the world and what success meant in the world. According to them, success in ministry was measured the same way you would measure it in business or politics, uh, measured in terms of size or influence or growth, measured in terms of popularity or power. That's what effective ministry is about, according to these false teachers. And so according to them, Paul is a failure. Uh, Firstly, he says, because they accuse him of not being authoritative enough, uh, not being a real leader. You see, a real leader will exert his influence So in verse 1, he he sort of takes the badge that they pin on him and says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. He's quoting their accusations against him. Again, in verse 10, we get it a little more clearly. For some say 
His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. We think someone's a coward if they just bully someone online and are not willing to say it to their face. Now that's their accusation against Paul. He commands people in his letters, but in person he's weak and he's not worth listening to. You see, a real leader would show some authority, would have some presence uh, in front of people. That's the first accusation. Uh, Secondly, they accuse him of being an amateur. Uh, That's over in chapter 11. Uh, They feel like uh, any good leader would charge a big fee. Uh, It's like you get a consultant into your business and if the consultant comes in and charges you $100, you think, what's he? It's got to be $10,000 a day or or he's not worth listening to. Uh, Or if you buy a good car. You know, if someone says, this is the best car in the world and it'll cost you $5,000, you'll, I think that's, what do they say? You pay peanuts and you get monkeys. And that's what they think about Paul. If he's charging for nothing, if he's charging nothing, he must be worth nothing. But Paul, you see, he says, he will always preach the gospel free of charge so people don't approve him of the wrong motives. Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 11, he says, Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. See, according to the false teachers, someone who's a good leader would not lower themselves like that. Instead, they would push themselves forward and submit a nice big invoice at the end of it. They would seek to be served rather than to serve. But Paul fails that test as well. Paul's in a difficult position as he faces these accusations. If he defends himself, he looks just like the false teachers. He looks like he's pushing himself forward when he's saying real ministry is something other than that. But if he says nothing, if he just maintains a dignified silence, then the false teachers will just keep influencing the church. So so he has to defend himself. Now what makes these chapters 10 and 11 a little confusing uh, is that Paul uses irony here. He actually accepts the insults coming his way and I think he turns them around uh, to show what true ministry looks like, to, to, to what ministry that's approved by God looks like. If you actually skim through these chapters, you'll see the names that Paul accepts on himself, the labels he's willing to pin on himself. He describes himself as brawling, fighting. He's jealous. He boasts. He's foolish. He's amateur and he's weak. Now, I'm guessing if we went to, if we wanted to find another minister to come and help in the work here, that is not the list of qualities we would be putting on the list, is it? Brawling, jealous, boasting, foolish, amateur and weak. And yet Paul describes himself this way. First, brawling or fighting. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 2, the false teachers accuse him of not measuring up to the standards of the world. Uh, Paul responds by saying, sure, I live in the world, but I don't fight the way the world fights. But he does fight. Verse 4, he says, the weapons we fight with. They're not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
You see, God does have an army. But God's army fights using God's weapons, not men's weapons. And God's weapons are far more powerful. Uh, Perhaps you remember the movie Men in Black. Uh, They would walk around on Earth using weapons from other planets. Now, they didn't look very impressive, these weapons. Uh, Sometimes this tiny little pistol. Uh, But they were much more powerful than anything that was on Earth. It's a bit like that with Paul. He's fighting with weapons from somewhere else. These weapons don't look impressive, but they have divine power. They have power that demolishes strongholds. Compare weapons. Uh, Worldly leaders, they bully, they disagree, they push their point. They build their empire, they dominate, they rule by force of personality, they trick and deceive, they assemble allies, they play politics. But the godly leader doesn't look like that or behave like that. His weapons are from another place. Back in chapter 4, perhaps you remember, Paul describes his ministry. He says, rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, those are weapons that don't sound powerful, do they? Words, setting forth the truth clearly. But they have divine power, and so they're much more powerful. Notice the effect, as Paul describes the effect of his ministry. Uh, Verse 5 and 6, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought, to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. Now this is not wimpy Paul. This is not weak servant Paul. This is commando Paul. He's demolishing. He's taking captives. He's punishing. Now he's not doing physical violence to people, but he's convincing them, convincing them to change sides. He's convincing them to offer a new allegiance to Jesus who died for them. Sure, says Paul, I'm willing to be seen as someone who fights, who brawls, but I'm fighting to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now that's us as well, it's not just Paul. You may feel in your interactions with the unbelievers around you, you may feel powerless and irrelevant. You may feel like there's not much in your arsenal, you, you simply try and live for Jesus. You, you sort of mumble your way through conversations and try and bring up Jesus where you can. Maybe you invite them to church or to a, to a course. Maybe you invite them to read the Bible with you. It doesn't seem very powerful, does it? It must seem, uh, it can often seem hopeless, those sorts of weapons against intellect, money, prosperity, Contentment, political correctness. What chance has the gospel got against things like that? But God says that truthful, transparent words, a consistent lifestyle, they actually have divine power. God works through those to take captives for Jesus. So stick at it. 
even when you feel like you're losing the battle, because God's approval matters. Well, let's look at the next accusation, uh, boasting. Uh, Cheryl mentioned this one in the kids' talk. That's from verse 8 of chapter 10. Uh, you see the false teachers uh, fitted right into the Greek way, which was all about boasting. That was just the natu- that's what you did. They would write each other glowing references. They would talk themselves up. But then there's Paul, a servant uh, of Christ, who in humility and weakness and foolishness preaches a cross, a sign of shame and rejection. Now Paul's opponents saw humility as weakness. And so Paul must defend himself, but without sort of fighting the way they fight. So in verse 7 he says, If anyone's confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. But even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Yes, he says, I've got authority, but notice how it's different from the super super apostles. They want to build themselves up. But he's not building himself up, he's building up the Corinthians. That's the authority of a shepherd protecting sheep. It's the authority of the servant leader. It's not the authority of the dictator, the empire builder, the attention seeker. And he's happy to boast about that sort of authority, the authority that builds up others. The theme of boasting continues a bit further on, down in verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits. We'll confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. Paul's going to boast. He's going to exult. He's going to rejoice in being part of God's plan. And he'll do it in the area that God's given him to boast about. Now, that all has nothing to do with him, ultimately. And so in verse 17, he says, Yes, boast, but boast in the Lord. Boast because of the Lord. Boast about who God is and what he's doing. Forget how many likes you might get. Work on getting likes for Jesus. If you flip over into chapter 11, verse 16, Paul boasts a little more. And he recognises he's, he's being a bit foolish by this. Since many are boasting, I too will boast. Verse 18, you gladly put up with fools, since you're so wise. Uh, Let me boast a little. Uh, They boast about their appearance fees and their popularity. Well, here's what I boast about. Uh, He begins in verse uh, 21. What what anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. He's got all their credentials, but he's just getting warmed up. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, and so on and so on. I get tired just reading it. Paul lived it. Pain, injury, poverty, suffering, that's true ministry. That is Christ-like ministry. Notice the goal is the safety of the churches. Paul's number one concern, verse 28, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Can I suggest that's a list that you would do well to, to read over slowly and meditatively, meditatively, meditating. Uh, compare yourself to it. How important to you is living to please God? How important to you is this group of God's people? How does that importance show itself in your life and, and what you give up for this group of God's people? Boast of your love and concern for the church. Now that's an attitude God approves of. Well, the next label Paul takes and turns around is that of being jealous. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 2. Now, normally jealousy is not a particularly godly trait, you would think. But, But remember in the Old Testament, God says that he himself is jealous. He is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for the loyalty of his people. You see, jealousy, correctly understood, it's a good thing. When it's not tainted by sin, it's a desire to hold on to something that is rightfully yours. God deserves loyalty. God deserves glory. Jealousy, correctly understood and without that sinfulness of selfishness, is an expression of love. It comes from wanting what is best for this other person rather than wanting what's best for yourself. I think we normally confuse envy with jealousy. Now, envy is definitely wanting something that is not yours. Uh, It's envy that is selfish and sinful. And so when Paul says that he is jealous, uh, it's not about selfishness. He's looking out for the Corinthians. His feelings are, are strong that he wants them to remain pure. He's responsible for them. He doesn't want anyone else to win their affections. And so he says, verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. It's, all, it's feelings that are all about the other party. It's natural to have feelings of protection and loyalty. Those sorts of feelings are are, are natural and good in a marriage. Paul feels so strongly because of the danger of the false teachers. So in verse 4, he says, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. That's the false teachers. These super apostles... Down in verse 13, Paul uses the strongest language he can muster. His emotions are those of a marriage partner fighting for his marriage or her marriage. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. 
No wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. It sounds angry and authoritarian and unloving to be that harsh with people, judgmental. But that sort of protectiveness, that emotion, it's not coming from sin, it's coming from love. God approves of that sort of godly passion for God's people. Do you love God's people like that? Well, next up, he addresses this charge of being amateur. We already looked at it, chapter 11, verse 7. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? Paul is following the example of his servant leader, Jesus. Christian leaders lead by serving. God approves of that attitude. And finally, Paul is proud to call himself weak. In fact, he even boasts about it. Over towards the end of chapter 11, we'll look at this idea a little more next week, but we'll just catch a glimpse of it today. In verse 30, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, what sort of a leader admits to weakness? What sort of apostle is proud of it? Well, Paul is, Paul is willing to show his weakness. In verse 32 and 33, he mentions an event that I think he's probably deeply ashamed of as he, as he looks back on it. He feels like he really let the side down. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, verse 23. It's, it's perhaps a few weeks after he was first converted, he's in Damascus, he's preaching about Jesus and he's baffling, he's confusing the Jews. And so they decide to kill him. So the other Christians in the city of Damascus, they help him to escape by lowering him from the city wall down in a basket and he can escape. I think in Paul's mind, it's the very opposite of what the leader of an army should do. The leader of an army should be the first to go up and over the wall and into the city and lead his army in attack. And yet here's Paul, the first to flee, going down and away. It seems like something he's deeply ashamed of, but he's going to speak about it. He's going to boast about it because he's boasting in the Lord. And God's upside-down way of doing things is to actually use weak jars of clay to carry the light of his gospel. God loves the humble and weak to those who know it, who boast in it, who know they need him. And so Paul will boast in God's strength and his weakness because he's refusing to enter the contest with the false teachers. This comparison, this searching for approval, which is all about human-centred measurement and ultimately is meaningless. Because in the end, there's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's. Right there in the middle of those two chapters, chapter 10, verse 18, Paul says, For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. That's his inner motivation. Seek God's approval, his alone. When you have a choice, a decision about what to do, how to act, what to say, don't listen to the other voices. Don't consider their opinions. In the end, none of them amount to anything. 
Listen for God's commendation. Make your decisions based on that. I can't guarantee your life will be easier. Almost certainly won't. But it'll be worth it to work for God's approval, to boast in him. God's final approval, it it may be quiet, you may not get to hear it for decades, but I believe it'll be worth the wait. Matthew uh, Matthew 25, 23, uh, Jesus says to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Let's work for those words of approval. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit, we confess that we are swayed by what people think of us. We know that it's a, it's a poor thing to, to worship, to, to bow down to the human approval, human acceptance. Uh, We pray that you would help us to understand more and more what your will for us is and what it means for us to work for your approval. Uh, Help us to know the joy of following you uh, so that we might receive uh, that reward of, excuse me, of well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.